Welcome to Pleb Chain Radio, a live show brought to you by Plebs for Plebs, which focuses on the intersection of Nostra and Bitcoin protocols. Join QW and Avi as they run down the weekly news and developments, breaking down the current thing and the future frontier with the foundation of decentralization, the builders, thinkers, doers, and plebs. All right, we are live. Welcome, gentle plebs, to episode number 37 of Blabchain Radio. Today is Friday, November the 24th. It is 5.30 p.m., 5.32 p.m., I should say, on the east coast of the United States. We have a fantastic Black Friday double header in store for you. We, of course, will start off with our sermon and then the lightning round with the Nostra Report where Marseille leads us through that, our weekly recap of all things Nostra and Bitcoin. And then our first guest segment with a guy most people haven't heard of who may or may not have written something. But then the main event, Lynn Alden joins us to talk about all things Nostra and definitely no things macro. But QW, for the sermon, I'll throw it to you. Number one, it is episode 37, Avi. Um, that would be three, seven. Uh, three times seven is 21. So there are no coincidences here. Uh, we are always attached to the number 21. Uh, and let's make it special. Um, so it, I, I was kind of thinking about the, the sermon this week and how, how uh, you know, it ha- I like to have it align a little bit with the show, at least the theme. Uh, we do have two authors that are colliding in this double header. Um, and I think what the sermon really is, is becoming your own signal or being a signal. Uh, you know, Oscar Wilde said, uh, be yourself. Someone else is already taken. Uh, and I think really finding yourself is the big thing. Uh, finding your passion, uh, finding your purpose. Uh, when you become an author, Avi, um, you you basically just <laughs> encapsulated your signal through uh, your writing in your book, correct? Yeah, uh, it certainly was, uh, QW. And I will say Nostra did play a, a big role in that for me because uh, for the first time I felt and this is odd, right? I'm a grown-ass man here, but <laughs> joining Nostra in uh, December last year, for the first time, I felt li- uh, like I had a, I guess I'm using the term platform here in a more metaphoric sense rather than a literal sense, but I had a platform uh, where I could convey that signal, which I felt had been pent up uh, up until then. Yeah, and you say you're a grown-ass man type of thing. Um it's amazing how uh, a very encouraging culture uh, or a creative culture that we're kind of building out this uh, protocol creates kind of a, a feeling of youth uh, where your creativity uh, kind of gets captured and you become, become a little bit young again. Uh, you, you kind of start following those passions. Maybe you were, you were stuck in the matrix otherwise. Um, and I think Noster, I can't stress it enough how, how much Noster and the community in Noster can really take that to the next level. Um, you know, in, 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 kind of, uh, seeing you through, uh, to, to finish that creative thought. Um, and we're going to get a lot more into that creative thought that you had. Um, but would you say that Noster may or may not be the, the reason that 24 was uh, written? I would say it is a, if, I was actually going to save this up for the interview QW, but I, I think there's a natural lead in to this point that I'll make that, which is, 
Uh, and we can touch upon this more when we t in more detail a little later. But uh, there was a point where I ran into writer's block. This is pre-Noster for several months uh, while I was writing 24. And uh, sometime in March or so, I said, you know what? I'm just going to put it out the March of this year. I said, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm stuck on chapter five. Uh, I'm just going to throw uh, one chapter at a time and see what happens. And it was incredible because it was just a handful of people, like maybe under 10 people. And two names in particular, the uh, BT Capsule, our good friend, and New One, would they started commenting on every single one of those uh, posts, uh, every single one of the chapters. And when I saw it happen for the first couple of chapters, I, what struck me was, wow, there's someone actually reading this. <laughs> they seem to be liking it. And that was incredibly encouraging. And I think that just speaks to the culture that Nostra engendered, where it, it encouraged these random acts of kindness. Um, and I think just as a broader lesson, never underestimate a throwaway kind word or a line to someone, right? It might be cheap for you to say, right? It costs you nothing. But it, it can make an incredible difference in their lives. So random acts of kindness. And then Nostra was a fantastic place where, you know, those types of behaviors were exemplified. Yeah, and that's that's beautiful. Um, you know, and that can be that can be translated. Uh, Nostra can be translated to your local level, uh, more of like a decentralized signal as well, where it kind of empowers you to do things that you maybe wouldn't have done before. I've, I've spoke about that many times in the past about my story. Um, but that's really it. Um, you know, when, when you, when you, when you take those steps, uh, and, and you jump on the, the creativity that you otherwise would have, uh, put a damper on, um, I think you start, uh, that's your first step in kind of becoming your own signal, uh, and finding your purpose. So I appreciate that. And, uh, thank you, Abby, uh, for, uh, for being leading by example in this, uh, this analogy. And thank you, QW. Uh, and actually, everyone who read the the book along the way and just threw in, you know, the odd comment, uh, it, it was, I genuinely appreciate that, especially those two guys I called out, BT Capsule and New One, but there were others as well. Um, and so don't hesitate to just, if you can, it costs you nothing. Just a, a word of kindness to a stranger goes a long way. And I was going the other route, Avi. I was just uh, shunning you and uh, it, not commenting on any of it or reading it. So <laughs> it's the hard love that uh, pushes you over too. I would have expected nothing less from you, QW. You got to prove me, you know, prove it to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, let's uh, let's step it up with Marseille. Um, two in a row now. Uh, she 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 was traveling the world, and now she's a staple back in the lightning round. Um, how you doing? And how was your Thanksgiving, Marseille? Well, I can't leave you guys. I left for too long, and now I have to be here all the time. Because if not, you will forget about me. <laughs> My Thanksgiving was good. My mom made me a lasagna because I don't eat turkey. Um, but it was nice. It was like a small gathering with my family. We're not a lot. We're a small family. So it's just nice to get together, um, especially because I'm never home. So it's nice to get together every so often. But yeah, it was it was just a chill, a homey Thanksgiving. How about you guys? 
very low key myself. Normally we travel or go to uh, go to the big family gathering, but with a little one, uh, we wanted to make it smaller this year, uh, make it more about our first family Thanksgiving. Uh, and it was nice, uh, a lot more dishes than I'm used to, but other than that, it was great. Yeah. S- relatively similar story. I mean, I don't have a little one. Um, my kids a little more grown up, uh, but, uh, we did have a cozy family get together. We did not have Turkey, decided to skip it this year, but we had a great meal. So yeah, good. I didn't have Turkey either. I, uh, uh you know, I, I like to kind of go against the grain a little bit. Well, my mom says that if they had found, if the story had been like they ran into a cow, then we'll be all eating steaks. So let's just eat whatever we want. That's cheaper than some of the prices at the grocery store, huh? If you just run into the cow. Huh, I know, right? Running into a cow should be much easier to now. Okay, guys, let's get started with this lightning round because last week was kind of packed with not only like Noster news, but in general, like the world is just going insane. So let's get started with the world being insane. Okay. So first of all, I want to talk about something that I've been very, very critical about. And it's the fact that everybody's like, oh, Javier Millet is like the new Bitcoin president for Argentina. Let's just say he is a, an anarcho-capitalist and he is now president of Argentina, which is good in the fact that Argentina really needs to change. Their financial situation has always been in the verge of crumbling down. So who knows? He released a statement today saying that getting rid of the central bank of argentina is non-negotiable so it seems like that campaign promise that he made that he was going to get rid of the central bank is something that he's not going to change it doesn't mean that bitcoin is going to become the standard tender in in argentina it just means that there's an opportunity for a free market and it also means that there's a lot of work for us bitcoiners to do because ship coins have like have roots in argentina and i've seen it i've been there it's a highly shitcoiny plays uh, there's really strong bitcoiners that do their job and work really hard to make to to make a stance for bitcoin but there's a lot of shitcoin in there and i think we all should work all should work in uh, helping argentina make sure that they get an actual currency that works for the first time in their life now going back uh, to the u.s everything happened in the u.s this week so the sec charged kraken with uh with operating on registered securities as an exchange so well we saw that one come in there's no no joke with that uh they they came to an agreement with binance they have to pay 4.3 billion dollars i think and also cc stepped down as ceo of binance and he might be uh, facing jail charges so that's something that we will see it will take a little while i don't think it's going to be like the um, spf trial hey marseille quick question on on cz and binance where is the 4.3 billion going come from? Uh, that's a good question. Maybe you should call CZ for that one. <laughs> <laughs> what, but does anyone know? I mean, that is a lot of money. Presumably, they're not sitting on that much capital, right? They'll have to liquidate maybe the BNB token or... I, I'd I'd be surprised if they had 4.3 billion just lying around. Maybe it's paid in yield from the BNB token over time. But where that's- does the yield come from? 
so there's this thing also that I've been seeing. Like if you if you guys know a few months ago, Binance did something that is that they remove all stable coins from Binance except for USDT and BNB. Um, so they they reached an agreement with all other stablecoin providers besides Tether, uh, where they where they were going to 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 like people could bring their stablecoin, but everything will show as BNB and Binance. So why was that that's a good question and what that what what they gain on that is also another good question also i've never seen statements of binance backing for bnb and so we really don't know what what binance is holding in their reserves we don't we don't get a quarterly report a monthly report on binance reserves that raises a lot of questions i don't know what's going on there so and is not as transparent as other um players in the business in, in the in the industry that like are really transparent on, the, on what they have so that's a good question to ask yeah and marcy quick clarification there the binance stablecoin is busd right bnb is B the sort of true yeah true true, true. yeah i mean uh i meant to say busd but yes exactly now also um i mean Trading shitcoins is highly profitable. So who knows? They have a lot of things. They also had like NFT markets. They had uh, other wallets for like um, NFTs, and they had like their little um, non-custodial wallet that they have shitcoins on. So I, to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if Binance has some cash lying around. Also, I wouldn't be surprised if they have to liquidate a lot. So let's see. The upcoming months should be very revealing. I hope it's not something that's going to slow down the progress when it comes to bitcoin adoption because people tend to think that all these shitcoin things are the same as bitcoin um but it's just a time a matter of time to be honest like we just have to wait so moving on leaving binance there for a little while um so there's um there there has been a lot of push to to make sure that president binance by a uh, Jesus, there has been a lot of push towards President Joe Biden, Biden asking him to drop the extradition charges against uh, Julian Assange. And it seems like there are more members of the U.S. Congress coming in and asking for this to change. So I'm just here. Uh, if the audience was bigger, uh, if, it would be great. But since I don't know who's from the U.S. here, and if you're from the U.S., then you can write to your uh, member of Congress pushing for this. That would be great. Those things are needed. Julian Assange shouldn't be in jail, but okay. Then the other interesting thing that I saw happen in this regular world kind of thing is that so Joanna Qatar actually is a member of the Bundestag in Germany and she was in Lugano. I heard her talk the other day, pretty interesting. And she proposed a very good groundbreaking, groundbreaking legislation for Bitcoin in Germany. Um, whoever knows German people, if you know what's going on, make sure that they're aware of this because one of the biggest things that she talks uh, when she talks about Bitcoin is that there aren't enough Bitcoiners pushing in Germany to educate um, their government and their politicians and this is super important if politicians don't know about bitcoin how are they going to create things that are favorable for us and even though we believe that we should all be free to do whatever we want we all live in this world and we have to like buy to some laws so this is one of those things that we should definitely be working on talking to our members of congress to our politicians making sure that they are well informed and educated to know that um, they don't create stupid laws that can be even enforced um then so 
interesting. I had a conversation with Corn DeLorean, and I wish he was here <laughs> about mining. So Cirex B10Z published a report showing evidence that F2 pool mining pool may be censoring OFAC sanctioned Bitcoin addresses. So that means that they did not process those transactions. They were later picked up by other miners and they were transacted and they were they were done. But the thing here is that when we have large mining uh pools saying no to certain transactions, it raises the question of whether the, the the network can be censored. It worked correctly. Other people decided to take them. They didn't. That's that's perfect. But it is a problem and it's something that we should consider. Um, F2Pool's co-founder, Chun, he stated that um, they removed the filtering patch, so they know they're no longer filtering. But uh, he says that, I mean, it's their right to filter transactions if they feel like it. So it's a conversation, whether it's correct. It's just a very big mining pool. They do have to abide to some laws. So it raises some questions on, what, on the future of Bitcoin mining. But it's pretty interesting. And staying on topic with Bitcoin mining, someone paid 3.1 million USD transaction fee this week. What the fuck? It was mined by Ample and it hasn't been returned or anything. Nothing has been said about it, but that's a huge mining fee. Wow. Now, moving on from Bitcoin and the world outside Noster. Um, so will Nook the Damos relay this week? Like he just like woke up one day and decided that it needed to burn and he actually like exploded the thing. So he deleted all the notes and other stuff on the Damos relay. That was the biggest relay on Noster and it just poof, disappeared. To me, it didn't matter because I have other relays, but I do wonder if there were people that only had the Damos relay and what happened to all of those, those notes. Anyway, it's, it's Noster notes. It's just something that happened. Um, just to stop you there, it's it is interesting that uh, the the largest relay um, in history on in Nostra's history was nuked, and really a lot of people didn't see any effect or feel any effect. So, just an ode to the decentralization um, that Nostra protocol can uh, can can bring to the social sphere. It really does work. It, it's incredible. Like someone decided they no longer wanted all that data, and he deleted it, and. It didn't matter. We're still here. And my notes are still here. And I think you guys have all of your notes. So it's fine. I think. And in a cr- <laughs> yeah, I think so. But also, I Marseille, in a cruel twist from Will's perspective, we're talking about Will Kasserin here, the creator of uh, the Damas app. Someone downloaded all the notes or backed up all the notes from the Damas, or all the events, I should say, uh, from the Damas relay and then re rebroadcast them right back after uh, uh, Will uh, nuked it. So I think all of them are back on the Damas relay now. <laughs> so it was worthless <laughs> anyway. I mean, I, and that's another thing that uh, that leads to the beauty of decentralization. Anyone can do this. QB, what were you going yeah, to Yeah, no, it's interesting that, that he can <laughs> I think it was possibly semi, uh, doing semi things, but... Uh, uh, downloaded um, the backup or, or backed it up and then rebroadcasted. Um, it's an interesting uh, uh, avenue. I, I, I don't know. I haven't really thought about that until it happened. So um, I don't have much to say besides uh, interesting. I think we're all on the same page with that one. It's definitely our, just very interesting. I think Will. I, we, I mean, he was he, he was so excited about all the hard drive space he had, uh, and then it just got it just got filled right back up again. 
I mean, he could he could really just delete it and not tell us, and we won't know. Like now, he knows we won't know. So right, could just be that. Okay, let's move on. Alex Gleason's um, YouTube account was accidentally suspended from YouTube for a little while, and then it came back on. But he did he had NOS there, and he was able to put like other links for his videos. So this shows that we are ungovernable. <laughs> that is pretty cool. But I mean, why YouTube? Why do you have to do these things? There's a search of Noster users in Thailand. There was a TikTok video that talked about Noster in Thailand, and it just brought a very huge increase of uh, Thailand Thailandese. I don't know, people from Thailand into Noster. Um, there was also a report from Hodl Hodl that this week there has been a thirty percent increase in Bitcoin buy offers. Um, I wonder if that has anything to do with the price. Moving on, uh, Fabian uh, showed us a really cool way of hosting our photos. Uh, the photos that we post on Noster, we can put them on War on our WordPress websites. He did like he showed us this plugin. You guys should really go check it out. Um, Zero X Chat released a new version, and this one includes private groups, self-destruct messages, and many more things. The cool thing I think is that DMs now default to the gift wrap spec and can be set to auto-delete after a certain period of time. So this is bringing some privacy into those DMs that we know doesn't exist. Um, Bob released the, SAP, the fastest SAP splits on Master, so it's much easier and faster to do SAP splits. Island added um, 5 million, five, five, over 5 million SAP, over a 5 million SAP bounty to add um, to development of Noster Nest. Thank you, Island. I hope everyone, someone steps up because we're using this and we would love for it to be better. Seven, and then seven fives in a row, uh, Marseille. So 5.5, 5, 5, 5, 5, 5, 5. But it's more importantly, uh, the show notes will always have the Noster bounty, Noster Nest bounty uh, in it. So please, if you're a dev, uh, it, it's all written in there. Uh, there's, there's sats to be had. Please, 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 please. And then not only that is that Chef for Brains added another 500,000 sats. So, I mean, this is just getting bigger. Derek had already added some. There's some more from the island. Just someone, please work on the nosterness. Um, so Sean and Carnage also did a bounty, but this one is each of them pledged 250,000 uh, 250, sats um, to redesigning the NOS.x signing extension. So more more bounties, guys. There's work to be done. There's sats to be earned. Come on, developers, what are you guys doing? Um, our soon guest after our wonderful uh, Avi, Lynn Alden, announced that the audio version for Broken Money is not released and is done by known other than guys one. So let's, let's if you guys want to listen to that. Now, let's talk serious business, guys. Like something very, very deeply serious happened yesterday and is that Wallet of Satoshi was removed immediately, gave no one a chance to know about this from the App Store and Google Play Store in the United States, uh, which takes me back to the fact that that was, I think, the easiest non uh, the, the easiest custodial wallet for US uh, people to onboard users. And it's like right before the onboarding your family member season started. So yeah, this is this sucks, but it's something that um, I think we all could see happening in the United States. There's a big crack in the the U.S. government trying to KYC everyone as much as possible. And if you are a custodial wallet, you're in a tough spot in the United States. With that being said, Ambas um, 
is encouraging anyone that has questions that they, if you work with Lining and you have regulatory concerns about what's going on in the United States with Lining, please go ahead and reach them out because they will be able to help you. And then taking advantage of this situation, SUS has created discounted fees for the weekend. So if you're trying to take out your SATs from the wallet of Satoshi and moving them to SUS, their fees are down. So listen to this like the fact that wallet of satoshi is has been removed from the app store and the google play store it doesn't mean that your wallet of satoshi on your on your phone right now doesn't work it means that it's not going to be updated so if you want to take out your sats you can and you should because your wallet will stop being will, will stop being functional eventually so go ahead take out your sats move them to another wallet so pass discounted fees i don't know now, Verbiricha released a Nostr client for funding causes, so crowdfunding and goals with Lining. It's called Heya, so go check it out if you're looking for an, an option to do crowdfunding. Um, Pablo did something really cool as usual. I, I don't know if Pablo is ever not on the Lining round. Um, he did several things, but the first thing that he did cool was that he cre recently created a relay that has 140 limit um, character, um, 140 character limit which means that this could help with spam. We've been getting a lot of spam recently, so hopefully this does help a bit. A bit. And then he also announced that you now have DVM content discovery in Nostrudel. And I have to say something. What have you guys done to me? Like, I, I asked in the group, what is DVM? And then I looked it up, and then I understood, and then I got excited. Why are you guys turning me into such a nerd? Like, what are you doing to me? Like, why do I get excited about these things? Nostra, you're turning me into someone else. Like Abby said early, creativity. Now I'm a nerd, I guess. Shit happens. It's your robot friends. <laughs> it's all your fault, QB. Um, let's see. I think I'm almost done. I just have to say... Two more things. Uh, oh no, actually three. Boster is um, a Noster relay that bounces your Noster read and write events to multiple relays. And the cool thing about Boster is that it helps with bandwidth. So this is something that I've been talking about a lot and it's that yes, decentralized communications are great, but it takes a lot of bandwidth. And these solutions are here to help mostly places where there is censorship. And these locations actually have really bad access to the internet. So Boster sounds like a really cool relay to have on your phone, on your phone app, I mean, on your on your Noster account and to be able to use it from your phone using data. If you're in a location where data is limited, this is definitely something that you should check out. Uh, Noster.bill has Black Friday discounts. FYI, if anyone's interested, go buy a Noster.bill account. Uh, BTC Caps, our lovely BTC Caps release um, Sovereign Node is a web app that provides a GUI interface for your Node's Bitcoin Core wallet. Go check it out uh, if you have a Bitcoin Core wallet. He was very interested in making sure that people don't abandon abandon those those um, those wallets, their Bitcoin Core nodes. So check it out. And then Bob launched Bitcoin Rewards, which is great uh, because for the holidays you can create a reward link. And you can share it with your friends and families, and they can claim these stats as long as they have a Lightning wallet. Also, teach them how to use custodial wallets so they don't get rugged. And that's the Lightning round for today, guys. I hope you liked it. That was a lot of news. I know. What a busy week. And uh, with that, uh, I appreciate it, Marseille, as always. And let's get to our, you know what, let's transform Avi from a co-host to a guest. What do you say, Marseille? Let's do that. Let's go. <laughs> and let's give uh, Avi a formal congratulations because uh, we've we've kind of whispered it a few times. Uh, you know, we've mentioned it uh, here and there, but 
Uh, really, congratulations. Uh, the book 24 is, I would say, on the on the uh, virtual shelves, but uh, I've seen pictures. It's out in the real world, too. I'm still waiting for my hardcover. Uh, it seems like the soft covers are already being shipped and uh, arriving just in time for uh, Thanksgiving and the holidays. So, Avi, let's talk about what compelled you to write a book. Uh, have you? Do you have a background in kind of writing, or are you just an avid reader? Um, what's what's what was kind of your uh, what what was your uh, reason to write a book? Yeah, so this is going to be a long story, QW. But first of all, thank you guys for that. I really appreciate all the support and congratulations and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, so I always enjoyed dabbling in writing, never written anything long form. Uh, there was a time in the early 2000s uh, when I was I was writing, you know, the short blog posts. I was always interested. In, so surrealist art and just surreal writing, uh, or even Dadaist writing, right? So it's basically stream of consciousness, uh, nonsensical, uh, but with some meaning in it, right? That type of writing always interested me. So I was dabbling in that uh, a little bit. Uh, if anyone's bored enough, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. It was a series of essays called The Curious Dream Life of Marshmallow Addy. Uh, this was, yeah, between the early to mid 2000s. And it, it helped me because I was going through a slightly tough spot at that time. Uh, if Strangely enough, writing those nonsensical stories, short stories, helped me cope. Uh, but then I never really wrote anything after that. I did have an idea for, uh, which ended up being the genesis uh, for this book. Uh, and this is before Bitcoin. This is in the mid to late 2000s before Bitcoin came about. Where A story in which, uh, you know, there's a young man whose father d suddenly dies. And then after his father's death, he realizes that, that you know, his father had been keeping a secret from him. And in, in, in the version I came up with back in the early, uh, or back in the mid to late 2000s, it was uh, he thought his dad was a part of a terrorist organization. And as he unraveled the cl uh, clues uh, to his father's secret through, you know, a series of these surreal dreamlike situations, uh, you know, he learned more and more about it. And then it ends up that his father's actually actually a freedom fighter, right? And not a terrorist. That, that's, that was the, supposed to be the ending of the book. I never got down to writing it. And then, you know, life happened and, you know, had a kid and, you know, fiat mining, all of that stuff. And, and let's fast forward to let's, well, well, we'll make a quick pit stop in 2016 because this is relevant. Uh, I was work, I had my own consulting business around then. I'd heard about Bitcoin and crypto, but, you know, wasn't, doing much but in 2016 this guy reaches out to me he sees my profile in linkedin i had a failing <laughs> consulting business as i was as i was saying around then and i was thinking about what my next move was and he reached out and said hey i'm in crypto uh i need someone of your background and i had a background in financial engineering and more specifically structured finance so he said i'm i need to create a i'm looking to create an exchange traded instrument for cryptocurrencies to be traded on the Gibraltar exchange, I need someone with a structured finance background to help me set this up. So that's when I started digging into Bitcoin, but unfortunately the broader crypto space as well, got into QW, you know the story, got into XRP. Uh, and then after that into blockchain technology in late 2016, early 2017. And I worked at a 
at an enterprise blockchain company for a couple of years and then another one for another couple of years before, you know, sometime in 2019, when I had that mid 2019, when I had that aha moment, where it's like, you know, everything I've been working on is a lie. This is all nonsense. The only thing that makes sense is Bitcoin. But even even that was a process, right? Even though I had that initial aha moment in mid 2019, it wasn't until sometime and and I, and I slowly became a maxi over that period. But it wasn't until sometime in late 2020, early 2021, uh, where it was, you know, well and truly Bitcoin only, right? And I spent that time since starting 2020 just listening and reading and absorbing, uh, right? It was because I, 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 you know, I'd admitted to myself that I was wrong about everything, right? That was that's part of the maxi process, right? It's it's like I was a shitcoiner, I thought I knew, I was wrong, right? And now I want to learn, and I just spent the next several months reading books, obviously Bitcoin Standard I read in late 2019, but there are several others, all the podcasts, you know, the Robert Breedlove, Michael Saylor series, listen to the whole thing. Um, and I think that was from early 2021, if I'm not mistaken. And then, you know, all the What Bitcoin Did episodes. And then fast forward a little bit till to late 2021, early, uh, the winter of 2021, which was, uh, according to President Biden, was supposed to be the winter of... Uh, Misery and death, or something like that. Yeah, winter uh, of death. I was, I was fearful. So it was around that time that um, uh, my employer at the time mandated the jab for everyone who worked. So I, and you know, it, it was very recent if you think about it, just a couple of years ago, and an incredibly dark time in this nation's history. Uh, and we've sort of, sort of put it out of our memory because you know we, we can do stuff now. But it was very recent. And I remember at that time being in an incredible dilemma, a really dark moment for me, which is I'm, am I going, you know, I had bills to pay, right? And my job allowed me to pay those bills. I said, what am I going to do? Like, abandon my family? <laughs> Maybe I'll just do it. I'll just take it, take one for the team and do it. Didn't help that I had family members uh, who was saying, yeah, it's just a jab. You know, we've taken it. What's the big deal? Take it. What kind of a father or husband are you anyway, right? Why why would you do this to your family? Just why would you lose your job over something like this? Uh, very dark time. Um, was doing a lot of, uh, re, you know, reading and absorbing. And that was the, you know, the Bitcoin stuff I was reading and absorbing was the one thing that kept me sane uh, throughout the whole thing. Luckily, I didn't have to take the job, you know, wrote, made up a cockamamie religious exemption letter. They accepted it. And uh, but so that takes us to the spring of 2022 and Bitcoin Miami happens. And that was the first big event I attended after COVID. Right? First time traveling in two years. And it was just an incredible experience, just meeting all those all, you know, plebs in Miami and meeting fellow Bitcoiners who, you know, in the last two, three years, I'd just been listening to stuff, seeing their faces, reading their tweets. Uh, and th that sort of opened the door to me. And then when, when I came back from Miami in April of 2022, I said, okay, I've done enough absorbing. I've done enough listening. Now I'm ready to start creating something of my own. And that's what... Uh, uh, so that's when I started writing the book. Yeah, uh, we, we could talk a little bit more about the rest of the process, but 
that that brings us to when I started the book. So basically, that's compelled you to write the book um, and and kind of get more involved. Uh, would you, I mean it, it's it's the first of its kind, correct? Um, I I think I I read something where you know if if there's a book you want to read, then write it. Um, is that kind of in this uh, scope uh, for you? Uh, is it something that you thought was missing maybe in the uh, the series of uh, Bitcoin-related uh, books? Yeah, so yes. Uh, what happened was I was ready to start writing, and then I thought about, well, what am I going to write about? Um, and I th- thought about a few topics, initially started thinking about writing some nonfiction pieces, uh, realized that just about everything I wanted to say about Bitcoin was said far more eloquently and a lot earlier by several people a lot smarter than me. So I said, what what can I do? And then I took a step back and said, you know what? I'm going to write the book that I want to read, right? That I would enjoy reading. Uh, and for that, that would need to be a book of surreal, a surrealist fiction, uh, a mystery of some sort, you know, magic realism, that that kind of thing with Bitcoin as a central theme. And then I remember this story from the late, mid to late 2000s that I had, and I recast it uh, with uh, Bitcoin as a central theme. And tell us about the book a little bit. Um, so uh, I understand it's a long form fiction book. So that would that would be kind of the first of its kind in regards to Bitcoin uh, uh, related. But tell us about the book. Yeah, so the book is about, and you're right, Kudobi, as far as I'm aware, it is the first long-form book about, certainly about Bitcoin maximalism, um, as far as I'm aware. But uh, it's a, it, it's, it starts with the, uh, the pr- main protagonist is a 23-year-old, almost 24-year-old uh, web developer at a Web3 startup. So he's fresh out of grad school in computer science. You know, kind of read the Bitcoin white paper when he was doing his undergrad, not really that familiar with it, you know, did study distributed systems. And then he got influenced by a lot of people who told him, yeah, yeah, don't worry about Bitcoin. It was good, you know, got us started. But there's so many of these new and better blockchains and and crypto uh, projects that, you know, that have completely overshadowed Bitcoin. So just focus on that. So he doesn't know much about Bitcoin. uh, And he starts working at this Web3 startup. And then his father unexpectedly or suddenly passes away. Uh, His father was a guy who worked in middle management at a reinsurance company, right? Um, And and then at the funeral, one of his uh, family friends, a German spiritual healer, tells him, look, your dad wanted me to teach you something uh, if a day like this were ever to come. And so she teaches him this, uh, uh, I guess, a guided hypnosis or guided meditation method where he can visit memories in his past. And the first thing he sees is an image of his father, like a scene with his father in which he says, and and the the man's name is Oliver, right? The protagonist's name. Uh, The father says, Oliver, there are 24 words and you need to find them. Um, And so then the book is a series of these sort of projections back in time. Now, the way this method is supposed to work is, I mean, and, and this is true, right? With standard hypnotherapy where... Uh, you can go back, uh, you know, access memories from your past in the right conditions that you might not fully remember, uh, you know, when you're f- completely conscious. So that that much is based on, you know, s- some uh, element of reality. I think in the way I cast it in Oliver's case is 
he realizes that he's able to go to other people's past, not just his past. And he's able to go to these magical places, that, you know, these fantasy lands and and get get these insights. So uh, which is completely unexpected. Right. So the book is a series of these flashbacks, if you will, or just, you know, time travel uh, through his mind. Uh, and each chapter, so there are 24 chapters in the book. Each chapter is about how he discovers one of those words through a series of these events. Are you saying all this and it's like the book is like very interesting in the, in the sense that it's like a book that is is not like the regular Bitcoin book where they're explaining to you how Bitcoin works and economics and Merkle trees or like philosophy based on Bitcoin is literally a fiction book but you adapted it to have like Bitcoin related themes was this like complicated do you think this like ref like how was it complicated because i feel like no coiners will definitely come in and read this book but how do you make sure that they're understanding the bitcoin part or they're just like they don't ignore it yeah and I've, i have tried to tell it through stories so all of those concepts that you talked about marseille merkle trees and uh and everything else uh the philosophy behind bitcoin i try to tell it through these stories right uh And I, I think it will be a bit challenging for a for a no coiner, especially if they have a preconceived notion of Bitcoin that oh it's you know it's bad for the environment it's uh, you know it's money used by terrorists and drug dealers. If they come in with that and and they try and you know piece together the story that I'm trying to tell, they'll be like this is crazy. I knew Bitcoiners are crazy, and I I knew, I knew this crypto stuff is crazy, so I'm out. Um, But I think if if a no coiner comes in with a clean slate without any preconceived notions, I I think the the story of a young man trying to uncover his father's secret, and in the process go through the five stages of grief, right, of grieving for his father, which happened to coincide with his five stages of of Bitcoin maximalism, right. Uh, I think they will find uh, some interest there and they hopefully I've done a reasonable job of explaining some of these concepts through allegory and and metaphor like ideas like merkle trees and and the signatures and and elliptic curve cryptography right which I've tried to tell through these types of stories uh hopefully that'll make sense to them. I is love there, this. Is there a mystery to be solved here? Uh is there a bounty uh for someone who solves it? Indeed, there is. Uh, look, there are 24 words, uh, so I figured might as well pick an actual seed phrase. Now, obviously, it's not in the <laughs> in the order of the chapters, uh, the, so you'll have to find the right order. And there are clues to find that right order um, of the words all through the book. Uh, and what, so I seeded the bounty with 10 million sets. Um, so once you find the right seed phrase, those 10 million sats are for you to claim. Uh, I will say that as the book royalties start rolling in, a percentage of that I will continue adding to the bounty so that it keeps growing. That's okay. just let me. That's just cool how you can you've integrated a, a story, a book, and you've actually attached that to real life uh, Bitcoin. You know, it, it it makes like this is an actual interactive book. Like you interact with the book while you're learning and while you're reading and while you're 
reading a, a, a fantasy story and you're interacting with the book right there. I and that's, that, that's another be, first of its kind. That's what I was going to say. It's it's definitely <laughs> another first of its kind. Um, I think something like what Avi's doing with this, uh, I I wouldn't. It's not far fetched to see something like this being done that, down the road too. Yeah, I I I think Avi, you're starting. You're 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 trendsetting a lot of things. So thank you for that. It's super cool. So let's. Would you call this a Bitcoin book? It's yeah, it de definitely is right. It is one of the things I, I mentioned this earlier, but uh, I think it, it it it's worth repeating. Is it's on the one hand, it's a story of a young man going. So the book has five stages in it, right? The first stage is called disbelief. The second is called entropy. The third is called anger. The fourth is uncertainty, and the fifth is acceptance. Now that sounds if that sounds familiar, it's somewhat closely related to the five stages of grief, right? Which is what he's going through, uh, mourning his father. But it is also the five stages of his Bitcoin journey, um, you know, in 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 becoming a, a full-blown maximalist from a Web3 guy. So yes, it is a Bitcoin book. And Very was this so. something that, uh, I mean, clearly it's a fictional storyline, but it was in, was it inspired by some of the things that happened to you down the road? Yes, a lot of them were. So the this German spiritual healer or whatever is based on a real-life character uh, that I know. Uh, a lot of the uh, character, so the, Oliver, the protagonist, works at this Web3 startup. That Web3 startup is based on a company I worked at. A lot, a lot of the characters, their names changed, obviously, uh, are highly caricaturized versions of folks. Uh, from that company, and you know, I, I I did want to draw out the absurdity that exists in the crypto and blockchain world. Um, so it's certainly based on a lot of those folks. And when you see these, you know, clearly, you know, it's one thing to say, "Oh, my book's uh, available," but now we're starting to see, like in the last week, uh, people people posting the picture of their book on the nightstand. Um, as a human, you know, that's just got to be in the author of the book. Um, how how does it feel seeing your work um, actually on book uh, on the nightstand? Yeah, it's surreal. It's uh, surreal on the one hand, and incredibly gratifying on the other. That you know, so, it, people are willing to trust that something that I've created is worthy of their time and attention. So incredibly humbling, incredibly gratifying, but also surreal. Yeah, I'm, I'm, and then uh, of course the next step is going to be where you start to get. Uh, reviews right <laughs> being a first author you got to start thinking okay well it's one thing they bought it. i wonder what they thought yes yeah i am waiting for that uh waiting for the first uh first one first person to tear the book apart in a review uh curious to see what they have to say and with the process of making this book um you know from idea to print uh, what kind of if, if someone were to, to, to looking to be an author, let's say, uh, well, I see Island or Sleepy or Tannel in the audience, if they wanted to become an author, uh, what what to kind of take to go from idea to print? Well, so th there are a couple of uh, ways of answering this question, right? One is if you want to do it, uh, what what sort of mindset do you need? Uh, I could speak for my process, which is I wrote the book that I would want to read, not what uh, what I thought people, other people would read. Right? It's I just wanted to uh, put that authentic idea out there. So that's from a mindset perspective. Now, from a purely tactical standpoint, 
well, you just sit down and you bang it out in a Word document. Uh, if you hit writer's block, then, you know, go for a walk, uh, you know, talk to folks, go to Amsterdam, smoke some weed. I didn't do that, but I'm sure that works. Uh, take some magic mushrooms if you need to. Uh, I didn't do that either, but I'm sure that works. Um, and, 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 you know, and hopefully, you know, uh, in, as, as it was the case with me, uh, I found encouragement in random acts of kindness from complete internet strangers who threw in the odd word of encouragement. When I was in, in a six month writer's block period, um, and so hopefully something like that happens. But yeah, you, you, you put it down. Uh, once you finish writing it, then uh, I would suggest if it's a book of fiction, certainly get it developmentally edited, meaning you hire someone who can uh, critique it from a, a character development, thematic and plot standpoint, uh, incorporate those changes and then get it. You have to get it line and copy edited, which is someone who looks for typos, punctuation and uh, formatting and all of that stuff, right? So once that's done, uh, find a book editing tool. We're talking about self-publishing here, right? If you're working with an actual publisher, then they take care of all of this stuff for you. But if you're self-publishing, you, you kind of need to do this all yourself. Yeah, find a book formatting tool that uh, prints out the book uh, with, with the correct dimensions and get a cover artist to design the cover and then send it off to Amazon. You, you kind of have to have, uh, I mean, I, I think you you kind of gifted with this where you can take uh, uh, criticism well, um, but you definitely have to have that idea that I, I want someone to chew this apart so I can kind of rebuild it. Um, uh, and, and I'm sure you did that a few once it got to the editor section. Um, was there a lot of kind of rewrite or re restructure, um, that kind of thing? Uh, and was it ever emotionally, uh, you know, uh, challenging? <laughs> You know, with the, so there were, two, I, I, as I said, I, I used two editors, one a developmental editor the, and the other was a copy and line editor. The copy and line editor was a Bitcoiner who works on a lot of Bitcoin related material and does editing there. Uh, that process was fine. The developmental editor, I intentionally chose, and in retrospect, probably mistake, intentionally chose some uh, someone who has zero knowledge of Bitcoin or the culture or anything like that. So I, I think she she is a professional developmental editor, but she, you know, writes vampire no novels and erotica and that kind of stuff. And I think she really struggled with the book. I think it, it a lot of it, she missed all the references, you know, all the innuend Bitcoin-related innuendo and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, a lot of her feedback, I, I tried to take it constructively, but I took... Most of it ended up being, well, you just didn't get it. Uh, you know, you just don't understand the culture, right? You're pushing back on um, on core elements of the book. If I change this, the whole book has changed. Like, I, I can't make this book not be about Bitcoin just because you don't know anything about Bitcoin, right? So... Uh, but there were other, but there were other constructive pieces that came out of that from just from dialogue structure and some character development, which I uh, did incorporate. So with that said, is it more so would you consider it an orange pilling book or do you think it's an orange complimenting book? I think it will it could act as an orange pilling book if someone comes in with a completely clean slate, right who's who's not biased because they've read some Greenpeace nonsense hit piece on Bitcoin or, right? If, 
if they come in that way, I think it could work. Um, it's certainly an orange complementing book. I, I believe I've given regular Bitcoiners a different perspective uh, to view Bitcoin through, uh, through this writing. Uh, probably, if it's not the first long-form Bitcoin fiction book, it certainly is the first book that contains surrealist poetry about Bitcoin. I, I'm mm. almost certain of that at this point. Uh, so I think it certainly gives a new perspective. One thing I didn't think about, and I've had five or six people independently say this to me over time, is if someone is a shit shitcoiner and they read this book, this will cure them. And that was never my goal. But apparently, the way the story arc works, according to all of these in independent folks, is a, is a way of deprogramming shitcoiners. So, hey, maybe that's great. If, if I can achieve that, fantastic. So, I mean, Avi, what, what's, I, I guess, the, the, the last question I want for you um, before uh, we, we end the show is, what's the biggest lesson you learned in writing your book? The biggest lesson I learned um, in writing the book, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think there were a few. One is that I, I could actually complete something of this magnitude uh, over a long enough period of time. Um, the other was just overcoming a six-month, six to eight-month break where I had writer's block. The fact that I could just pick it up and do it again uh, told me that taught me something about myself that I that I I can do that right that I did I didn't just drop it when uh, when things got a little complicated um, and and that you know there there are times when you get into the flow state and it didn't happen a lot but it happened enough while I was where, where I just sit down and the next thing I'd know I'd look up at three hours had passed. I'd written 15 pages and I'd, I'd read the pages and I said, where did those come from? Who wrote this? Right. And there were a few occasions when that happened. That is an incredibly intoxicating feeling. Um, so what I learned is I'm, I'm going to keep chasing that. If you could see how much you're making me smile with, with what you're saying, you wouldn't believe it because it's so inspiring. But you already know you're always inspiring to me. <laughs> Who's your favorite character, Avi, before we finish? Yeah, so there is a... Uh, a character from uh, the protagonist's uh, imagination. It's a character from bedtime stories that his father used to tell him when he was seven or eight years old. It's called the Nonsmeister, uh, and then he starts showing up in he in this in in these fantasy, uh, I guess, projections that he's having after he learns as he's searching for his father's secret. Uh, that to me is is in my mind is a pivotal character in the book. Because he's he's the one who leads Oliver, the protagonist, to uh, full Bitcoin maximalism through these fantasy conversations. Uh, but yeah, that was the most favorite character for me to write about. Well, I think this is a wrap-up QW with Avi uh, talking about this book. I think everyone should go just go go read the book. Go get it and read yeah. it. Um, Buy it. Uh, oh. I'll put the link in the show notes uh, per usual. And uh so all the rising tide lifts all boats. So um, get the pleb wheel going. We appreciate everybody. Uh, and Avi certainly appreciates the, the support. All right. So this guest uh, needs no introduction in our community, at least. Um, Lynn Alden joins us uh, on Noster Nest. Um, so Noster, Lynn, Noster Nest. Uh, tell us about, well, number one, how you doing? How was your Thanksgiving? 
So I'm good. Um, my Thanksgiving was uh, probably more more like um, private than usual because my husband is currently in Egypt dealing with like a property matter. Uh, and so he won't be back till next week, uh, which is fortunate for Thanksgiving timing. Um, and so basically we had a we had a much smaller Thanksgiving. Um, but overall, it's been good. How about you? It was good. We 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 all kind of did a lighter one. Um, I got a nine month old, almost ten month old. Uh, so it's just a very small uh, small gathering at my house. Um, I try not to travel too much with uh, with him, um, especially on a day like uh, Thanksgiving, which can get a little chaotic. So it was good. Um, and Avi did kind of the same thing, just kind of low key at the house. Um, we are turkey disruptors, though. Uh, we 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 do not uh, we did not have any turkey. Um, so, uh, hopefully it's a little cheaper for you, uh, for your Turkey next week, Lynn. Not even like any Turkey. Like I know, like, uh, like some Turkey disruptors do like, for example, just a Turkey breast or like a smaller amount of Turkey, like not a whole Turkey. You did, you did zero Turkey, <laughs> zero Turkey. I did a, uh, apple, uh, cornbread stuffing, uh, apple, uh, st- uh stuffed, uh, pork loin. Uh, which was amazing, but you know it, it did have the, the complimentary stuffing, the mac, the uh, your typical sides of the uh, uh, of Thanksgiving. But I did not have turkey. Uh, no, Avi, what about you? Just a little piece? Did you even stare at maybe no. a turkey while no. you're eating? Nothing even remotely turkey adjacent. It was ribeye steak, uh, scallops, um, and butternut squash soup, which I suppose is somewhat seasonal. Uh, but yeah. And, and and a nice apple crumble that my son made it was delicious. And Lynn, I think uh, the big thing about uh, what 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 really wanted wanted to hear. Granted, I've I, I I reached out a few months ago to to get you on sometime, but uh, your post the last week um, it might have been just a few days ago, um, but kind of just telling your backstory, um, you know, and and how maybe you could explain how how are you different on Twitter versus. Uh, Noster, uh, and, and maybe it's just how you you feel you're different. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, first, I'll point out that uh, I, I've done some non-Turkey Thanksgivings myself. Um, <laughs> sometimes when it's when it's just my husband and I, what, what we'll do is like we'll cook a full chicken uh, instead of a turkey because they're both birds anyway. So I don't think we've ever had like a non-poultry Thanksgiving, but we we have had a non turkey thanksgiving so it's still turkey adjacent um but we have cheated from time to time um and so i'll get that out of the way uh as far as nostrilin i i found myself originally on Noster. so for example i found the tech interesting um i was when it started to take off i found that fascinating from a technical and social perspective um but immediately i found myself kind of struggling to figure out how to best utilize it uh, in the early stages, I found myself kind of reposting stuff from Twitter, right? So, like, you know, I post macro charts or whatever on Twitter. I'll talk about money stuff, Bitcoin stuff, macro stuff, you know, just various kind of wonky finance things. And I would kind of repost it on Nostr, and it felt kind of hollow. And, um, you know, as, a, as like, a, a large account, I've had that kind of question pop up before. I'm like, should I have an Instagram? Should I have a Facebook I, I do not. Um, I, I would, you know, to, to, to any extent where I have a LinkedIn, but I don't post there, right? So to, to any extent that I would post on these platforms, it's like I would basically be dead there. Like those would be dead accounts. Uh, and either me or someone on my behalf would just kind of like copy my shit over there. Um, 
but for Noster, I liked the community enough and I, I liked the technology enough um, that I wanted to give it a little bit of a boost. Um, and so I decided after a little bit of experimentation, like I, I just went through the, those kind of like automated pat, like patterns of reposting my content. And then I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, I'm just going to post like weird shit here. Like not like mostly not finance stuff, like occasionally finance stuff, but just like kind of like my like almost like fourth wall comments, you know, like uh, kind of speaking to the audience more directly because I find as a. You know, I used to engage in smaller forums all the time and just kind of have like fun debates about multiple topics or chat about things. But when I became a large public account in financial matters, you know, there's a certain standard there. Like when you have half a million followers um, or like 150,000 email subscribers or just kind of these big metrics. And there's like, you know, like when you when you when you write your thing, there's like certain like billionaires or like heads of state that are is gonna like see what you say. <laughs> or just like that you're 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 countless people that like pay for your like uh your services, right? So you're you overall you start to like say, okay, I'm at a scale that I almost can't be myself anymore. Like I have to be a professional version of myself. Um and so that like whenever I post on Twitter, I think twice. Or whenever I post on my especially on my own website, I, I think, you know, three times. Um, and Noster, there's a combination of, one, it, it felt like that smaller form environment that I was used to before the rise of these major social media platforms. You know, I'm still pretty young, but I'm old enough to remember, like, when, you know, before Twitter was huge, before Facebook was huge, we had these smaller forums of little niche topics that were just kind of fascinating um, that somewhat still exists in like Reddit, subreddit, reddits and things like that. But basically there were these little communities that are just more connected. Like you actually know, you, you, you know, the people more there, they're less big, they're less kind of universal. Um, so there was that. And like, I had that kind of like personal hankering. And then number two, because I want the technology to succeed, I'm like, well, what can I do to hear this different? So I was like, let me just, let me just, let me use this platform for the time being to kind of vent some things that I wouldn't say on Twitter or to talk about non-macro things um, because it's, you know, it's, it's more, there's like a bunch of Bitcoiners there. Not everybody's a Bitcoiner. In fact, I, I love the fact that, I actually love the fact that there's like non-Bitcoiners there. Like I have people there to like criticize Bitcoin. I'm like, I love the fact that you're here on Nostra anyway. It, it, it's amazing. But overall, it, it's very kind of more Bitcoiner focused or more kind of like, you know, decentralization maxis or anti-establishment types. And I, I like that fact. And it's a smaller community overall. So I'm a little bit more direct and, you know, aggressive there. Not in terms of, like, aggressive of people, but, like, aggressive in terms of things I'll post. Like, I think less about posting them because they're, they're going out to fewer people. And there's some sense to that that's time-sensitive. I mean, if, if Nostra gets 5x or 10x more people... Maybe suddenly I have to be a little bit more conservative about things I post there. And now people, you know, for example, will take things I post on Nostra and put them on Twitter. So I have to think about things like that. But overall, I like the fact that it's a smaller community and I wanted to help it succeed. So I've been a little bit more blunt there. Would you say, Lynn, that the Nostra Lynn is the real authentic version of you? I think both sides. Uh, I, I think there's almost like there's like ego id and 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 you know super ego, right? So the Nostralin mm -hmm. is like the 
the part that I can't post elsewhere. So it's almost like it's, it's delegated to be the id, right? It's like the emotional side. It's like the angry side. It's like the real side. You know, there's probably overall a little bit more rawness there. Um, but it, I wouldn't say it's a complete version. I would say that if you look at both sides together, you probably get the real version. But that's that's true for any person. There's no any any person when they deal with their relatives, when they deal with their friends, when they deal with their lover, when they deal with their audience, when they deal with their whatever the case is, there's no real version of them. It's when you take all of them together, that's the real version. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I agree with well, that. When I'm, I when I work, I mean, I'm clearly I'm a different, a, a little bit more refined, I guess you'd say, as far as how I speak. But uh, yeah, uh, and and when when you say you wanted to do this kind of uh, to support the protocol, um, when did you realize that that Nostrs has potential? Roughly when I joined, I, I started to see it hit critical mass. And basically when, when both Jack Dorsey and um, Edward Snowden had touched it, um, I was like, holy shit, okay, this thing's taking off. And and prior to that, admittedly, I didn't really see it coming. Like I was looking at um, decentralized tech. So I was looking at, for example, um, the whole Keat area, like um, Hypercore, that whole kind of tech platform, uh, slash tags, I think they're called. What do they call it? Slash tags? Um, yeah. there's that whole kind of tech avenue there. I was also looking at like web five, like, you know, blocks, like focused on web five. I was looking at blue sky. Um, and I had heard of Noster, but part of me, like I, 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 you know, I deal with a lot of things, right? So my bandwidth is very spread out. And so I heard Noster and I was like, I knew it was a decentralized thing, but I was like, I, I don't really know what that is. So, and like, it's not really like, there's no big name that's catching my eye there. So I kind of ignored it. Um, but one thing I, I think I'm decent at is seeing momentum when it builds. And so when it was Nostr that ultimately started to build some actual organic grassroots momentum, uh, I was like, holy shit. Um, so I had to do like a quick spin up on it um, and got really into it. Um, so ever since... I mean, not quite a year, but close to a year now I've been put into it. Um, there was a small event that I went to in Costa Rica in, I think it was February of this year, which is before the Noster event was there. Um, that was for a different purpose. It was Bitcoin related. Uh, Jack Dorsey was there. Um, yeah, but it was not it was not specifically Noster, but that was like kind of near the inflection point where Noster was taking off. So that some of the discussions there were Noster related. Um, so I would say basically really early in 2023, nearly but not quite a year ago, is when I started to see that Noster was the one breaking out among the various decentralized tech that I was had been following, which admittedly was like not in my top two for like what I expected to maybe break out. But like, you know, you have to adjust when you see it. And, uh, and Lynn, going to some of the things you've been posting recently on Nostra, I, I, you know, I, find, I found some of those posts fascinating, uh, which is you touched upon a little bit of your backstory growing up in a trailer park. And I think you were talking about it more in the context of uh, using profanity uh, and how it can be deployed as a, as a tool to convey the right emotion uh, in, in whatever you're trying to communicate. But uh, 
why don't we go back to to the trailer park part first before we you know talk about the other part of that could you talk a little bit about your backstory there Lynn and how you know from there you rose to become you know one of the preeminent financial analysts and certainly voices in Bitcoin sure so I mean a, a very quick version um you know before like literally like five years ago um I I've been public about this uh, I just I've, I've been a little bit more blunt on Noster, but basically, it's been known for five plus years that I grew up in a trailer park from age like roughly seven to eighteen, um, and before that, from age four to six, I was outright homeless. Um, so basically, I my parents were divorced and separated. There was complex stuff I won't get into regarding from substance abuse to domestic issues and all sorts of stuff. But anyway, I was with my mom for three years, homeless to varying degrees. Sometimes we were living with relatives. Sometimes we were uh, in motels. Sometimes we were outright in a car. Um, and it, it got it got weird at a certain point. So I eventually went back to live with my father, who was in a trailer park um, and grew up with there. Now, I had a certain advantage in the sense that, like my mother, when we were living homeless, you know, she she's a lawyer, right? So she had a bunch of issues, but she was an educated person. So like literally we were in a Salvation Army, like, like a shelter, and she was sitting there making sure my education was great, right? So she was, she was a good, dedicated mother but had her own demons and we were, that's, that, that was our situation. And then I went back to my father and he, in some ways he was kind of the opposite. Like my mother was educated, but had a lot of issues. My father was not particularly educated, never finished high school. He had a GED, he was a police detective. So he was, you know, like in D and D terms, he had high wisdom, but you know, not necessarily book smart in a certain sense. Like he couldn't help me with my homework. Um, and he lived in a trailer, um, but he was, you know, he had a good credit score. He was like good money. He would, you know, he wasn't in debt, you know, he had no savings. He would just kind of earn money and spend it and was responsible. Uh, I went to live with him. And so we grew up in a trailer park, uh, for, and I was there for something like, I guess, 11, 12 years. Uh, he put me in martial arts. And so my overall kind of early environment was pretty rough, um, but still with the advantage of having people that cared about my education. So for example, my mother, literally in, in the midst of homeless shelters, cared about my education. And my father, despite not being particularly educated himself, was like, you best not get bees. Like, like uh, he was pretty, like, he kind of viewed it as like, that's your ticket out of here. Uh, and then for whatever reason, I just, I, you know, I had certain aptitudes, right? So I'm just, I was just kind of naturally, you know, intelligent, frankly, like just good at, good at academics, kind of baseline intelligent with other weaknesses, of course. Um, and so it's a little bit different than the average impoverished or homeless ex or trailer park experience, but there were still a lot of aspects there. And so even today, as like this, you know, well-known person, wealthy financial analyst, investment manager, um, 
you know, all these kind of like, you know, engineer, uh, manager of engineers in my kind of prior career. Like I've gone through a pretty significant career arc, but I still have these roots that are pretty rough compared to probably the average person in those positions. And I don't forget that. You know, Lynn, um, uh, coming from a place of relative privilege growing up that I do, I would view what you said. First of all, it's it's impossible for me from speaking from a position of privilege to to say anything that's meaningful about uh, that situation. But uh, I would view it as a childhood of adversity. First of all, if, if that's not right, if, I, if that's out of line, please let me know. But uh, my question is, if that is true, do you view growing up in adversity uh, as uh, as something that drove you to become who you are today? So I do view it as a childhood of, of adversity, uh, and I do view it as influencing who I became today. But I'm also well aware that it wasn't like absolute rock bottom. I mean, I could have been born in North Korea. I could have been born in like central, like the poorest central part of Africa, for example, one of those like deeply impoverished countries. Uh, I could have been born, like there's there's multiple content, or I could have been born in the US to like parents that were like literally on drugs all the time and don't even know what I'm doing, right? So, so there's certain levels of adversity that are like almost non-able to be overcome. Right. You're just you're just so structurally disadvantaged that you're fucked from day one. Um, I happen to be in a sweet spot where I had very specific combinations of an educated mother, a uneducated but hardworking and, and, and professionally successful father uh, that were I mean, they were separated. They were violent. It's just not not great. Um, and I, I experienced homelessness. I experienced, you know, growing up in a trailer park, but I had parents that loved me, that cared about my education. Um, and then whatever natural aptitude I had, like, I'm just, you know, there, just, there, there's certain realities that play out like, a, you know, and so I just, I was born being reasonably, um, have good aptitude for intellectual pursuits. And so the overall combination of having, a really rough childhood, but where like I still had even separated parents that both cared about me and those kind of details. It was almost like a sweet spot between adversity, but support. So I didn't like completely fall through the cracks and just become nothing. Um, but at the same time, uh, my adversity did give me a lot of pressure to do better and comparison you know, compared to some of my peers today. Uh, and so, for example, I see some people that are like, hey, I was born of nothing and I built myself up. And I think like, well, you were given, you were still given X, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? And so I don't, I don't ignore the fact that I still had certain advantages compared to other people that had like nothing, right? So I, I, I think it's, it's really that kind of like accidental sweet spot that both had advantages and disadvantages on me but probably did play a very big part in making me who I am. And being at, you know, clearly education was a big thing. Uh, that was the kind of the, 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 the way out, I guess, uh, like you mentioned your, your father uh, or mother said, but uh, what brought you kind of to the electrical engineer uh, field? 
Uh, is that something that you picked or is that something that um, you kind of developed into? That was kind of random. I, I had an older brother. So like my father had a family uh, from a prior wife who, and like the, you know, all of his other kids, you know, they're all my half siblings. They were old enough to be my parents. Um, and I was only close with one of them. And he was an engineer. Um, and in general, like, you know, for example, I was on like my mathletes team. I eventually was the captain of my mathletes team in like high school. Like I just, I, I, I gravitated towards math and science and I was actually, it's funny now I'm kind of known as like a writer, but back then I was like not good at like English and social studies. Like I wasn't good at the writing, uh, details because I was, I was usually writing about things I didn't care about. Um, but I gravitated towards the more quantitative things. And so being a engineer or scientist appealed to me. Um, even back then I was interested in finance. I mean, I started, you know, I was like, I was like the kid that like read the wall street journal. So I kind of had like a dilemma between going into engineering or science versus going into finance. Um, and ultimately I went into engineering. Uh, it, it was really kind of random. It was kind of like, well, I just like tech. Um, I was interested in things like space and lasers and back then, less so now, but back then I was interested in like renewable energy. Um, it's kind of like the more I learned about it, the more I shifted my view on like what even constitutes renewable energy. Um, but overall, just the idea of broadly energy, space, um, things like that, advancing, advancing tech was fascinating to me. Um, and so I went into that. But one thing I quickly found out was that the absolute best engineers, uh, when they go home at the end of the day, they keep engineering. They're in their own like house and they're tinkering or something. Whereas what I found was that when I went home from engineering, I tinkered with finance. Um, like I kind of just realized like I was not nerdy enough in the, like in the good sense, like basically like there are people that are just way into this more than me in engineering and I'm never going to be a top 1% engineer. Like whatever reason is just not drawing me the way that it's drawing them. And I instead felt the same pull toward finance. And so within a few years of my engineering profession, even though I had, I had technical accomplishments in my engineering role, like I was a good engineer, um, but I found that my, like where I shined was the intersection between engineering and finance or engineering and management. Uh, and so I started to pursue those more intersectional roles rather than being like the hardcore technical detailed engineer because there, there were clearly people that were like way deeper into that than me. Uh, and that's where their passion lied. Um, and so that was kind of my career trajectory. It's kind of like starting both, like it started with investing, got into engineering, but then kind of gravitated back towards finance and investing. And you know, Lynn, I need to ask this as a fellow electrical engineer myself. Do you think your electrical engineering background helped you understand Bitcoin differently than someone, let's say, with a computer science background? I do a little bit. I mean, first of all, I'll point out that when I analyze finance, my engineering is not lost entirely. I mean, I, I basically I was trained in systems engineering. 
And even as an electrical engineer, I focus heavily on control engineering. So analyzing hundreds of inputs, hundreds of outputs, all the control logic in between them, uh, and trying to analyze how to keep track of such a complex uh, input-output system. And I realized that that's, that's kind of the basic framework to apply to like how the global banking system works. So first of all, my just that overall kind of control and engineering was useful for that regard. Um, as it pertains to Bitcoin, um, you know, I do think that the, the I have noticed. I mean, there are like a number of engineers in Bitcoin. I mean, Michael Saylor, Saifedean, um, myself. I mean, there's something. It almost seems like pure software people. Uh, there, there tends to be. I mean, there's a mix there, but they 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 seem to gravitate more towards crypto, whereas hardware seems to gravitate more towards Bitcoin, even though there's a big overlap. Um, I think the combination of understanding the energy component was helpful, and then also I had had experience with engineering management, and I'd had years. You know, I have like an engineer with like this insanely complex idea. I have an en another engineer that says, okay, I mean, we're going to only have like the basics here, but it's going to be super robust uh, and it's going to be modular. Um, and that solution is almost always better. So I had come to appreciate the technical, like beneficial aspects of simplicity. If something is simple, robust, they're not overthinking it. They're security focused. They're future focused. So how can, how can we make this really basic framework updatable towards certain scenarios? Um, and so I had, you know, from being both an engineer and an engineering manager, including managing software engineers, I would come to just understand that complexity is a nightmare. Um, and so Bitcoin's simplicity was was appealing to me uh and i'm not sure that it would have been had i not had years of literally managing engineering teams and seeing how complexity fucks things up uh and really good complex ideas can mess things up and having a more modular upgradable framework has been very helpful so that that kind of made it more appealing from, to me from the beginning i think yeah that's quite the coincidence there uh lynn uh, i studied control engineering uh, during ee as well uh, and in fact uh focused on finite state machines and one of the first things i noticed about bitcoin and then in the early days i was unfortunately enamored by blockchains as well other blockchains as well was how closely they resembled finite state uh, automata so uh, i think that was it certainly gives a different perspective from someone who comes from a computer science or or even a distributed systems background yeah, no, I agree. There's, there's, there's plenty of overlap there. And what I just generally found was that if you make a base layer so complex that you're always going to need to adjust it, it's never going to be immutable. Um, and it's more likely to die from its own technical debt um, versus something that's like super simple, like Ethernet, for example, or just these like really just like the best, most successful protocols are kind of dumb at the base layer. And any complexity that they have is on periphery higher layers. 
And so basically, like, that's for, that's why from the beginning, I was drawn towards Bitcoin. Now, that, that doesn't mean that, like, when I first analyzed all this, I was like, Bitcoin's going to win. But it was, I, I generally find, and this, this kind of separates crypto and Bitcoin, I generally find that people who think the, the problem is finance, like they say, we just don't have the best, like, exchanges, we don't have the best, you know, X, Y, Z, they tend to gravitate towards crypto, whereas people who say, we don't have good money, like the, the root layer, like the absolute foundation itself is corrupted. Um, they tend to gravitate towards Bitcoin. Um, and as someone that had the combination of studying money and finance and then studying kind of complexity theory, like how really complex systems are really hard to maintain and they, how they tend to be fucked up over time, um, I started gravitating more towards, for both reasons, towards the, those more simple systems. Um, and so I do think that my engineering background played a role in why I appreciate some of the details of Bitcoin with a pretty high conviction degree. Um, so I, I approach it financially. And the funny thing is, like, some, some of my readers don't even know I'm an engineer by training. Um, they're like, oh, Lynn's not technical. And it's like, no, like, literally in this case, the, the technical work I did is part of why I had the conviction I do on this more simple layered approach than trying to be super complex because I kind of see the folly of making, you know, kind of so complex systems that nobody can agree on them, that people are always changing. Um, and that's why I'm less like attentive toward some of those very complex blockchains. You definitely have a way when you when you speak. Uh, I mean, I, I learn a lot from you, even when you're talking, I guess, about technical things, um, you know, on other uh, other podcasts or uh, just uh, reading your, uh, your 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 posts or notes <laughs> uh, or, uh, you know, the, the way you, you kind of describe things or your analogies. Um, there was one analogy uh, during I think it was what Bitcoin did, uh, Peter McCormick, when you when you referenced the Starcraft maps. Uh, in 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 can and how you basically in, in making a ledger analysis. Uh, do you have kind of a StarCraft background? Um, I think the most recent one was a Magic: The Gathering. Uh, uh, you were talking about uh, collection, or maybe you had some pieces of cardboard that uh, have a store of value. Um, but what what kind of gaming background do you have? I suppose. So I played StarCraft 1 uh, and then the expansion Brood War. And then uh, because I liked it enough, I continued to StarCraft 2. Like um, I was diamond ranked in StarCraft 2, which is not great, but it was decent. Um, I had a decent amount of experience in both of those games. Um, and this, I mean, going back to the prior, I, I think I mentioned some posts. Like I, the fact that I got into like nerdy um kind of gaming backgrounds was partially because of my environment so for example one of my best trailer park friends julian he was the one that taught me how to play magic the gathering he taught me how to play dungeons and dragons and these were i mean i had played pokemon i had you know i was i was playing some basic nintendo video games and stuff but i wasn't really a gamer um and he was the one that got me into a little bit more of the nerdy side and that had stuck with me so like even even like the modern era, like my husband and I will play some D and D campaigns together, for example. And I don't play StarCraft anymore, um, but I still know and remember the game enough 
to be able to reference it and, and real-time strategy games in general. Um, Magic Gathering I've played more recently. I mean, not not super recently, like probably two years ago. Uh, that's that's something I, that's been more reoccurring to me than StarCraft. Um, and so some of those nerdy, like, games, uh, like, came from just, like, the friends I just kind of ran into in those eras. Um, same thing for, like, like I, in my book, Broken Money, I mentioned Diablo 2 uh, as, as kind of this, like, case for money developing organically. Um, and, for example, like, I came to know Diablo 2 because my friend Julian, or Jordan, in a, a trailer park environment. So, you know, that's just, it's just kind of how it worked out. Yeah, I, I just think that's really, uh, it's a big part of why you're you're so easy to understand, I think, because you talk from such a uh, a pleb mentality or your analogies are just so, so, so I mean, they speak to me at least. Uh, I do have to know what StarCraft race uh, do you prefer and then uh, deck color and magic? So in StarCraft 1, I was firmly Protoss. In StarCraft 2, I was kind of between Terran and Protoss. I always had trouble with Zerg. Um, so that's that answer. For, for Magic, I, I was pretty flexible. Like I would have different, I would have like, you know, a, like a, a burn deck. I would have like um, a control deck, for example. In general, I, tr I trend towards tempo. So kind of like, usually blue and something else like blue red or like blue black or something that that is not pure control but it's kind of like aggro control or tempo based like i would i would slowly try to build board position and poke them out while controlling the field to some extent um i liked uh flash decks so creatures that can be played like on the opponent's turn that often had effects when they came into play. So I would sit there and either have a, like have a handful of counter spells or creatures that could be played at the end of their turn if they don't play anything. And so I would kind of like slowly respond to them and build out like a, like a force. So that probably that aggro control environment appealed to me uh, with, with blue probably being the most common color, but um, pretty flexible across colors. That's that's amazing, um, and and you know clearly I just took you off uh, off the kind of storyline about uh, you know you <laughs> growing up and uh, and then getting to electrical engineering. Uh, but I would like to know at which point did you realize uh, the money is broken um, it, with within that uh, within your story? Probably not until twenty seventeen. Um, prior to that, like I knew that like debt to GDP was going up and the, that's obviously like what's going to happen there kind of basic questions like that um, but it was around that 2017 period where so if you look at most if you look at certain charts you'll see that the fiscal deficit as a percentage of GDP um, is pretty highly correlated with unemployment so during periods of high unemployment aka recessions you generally get bigger deficits and during periods of low unemployment, you tend to get, get smaller deficits. And what we saw in 2017 and the following years, 2018, 2019, and so forth, um, is that we had basically decreasing low unemployment, but the deficits started blowing out anyway. 
Uh, and that was the first time that had happened since the Vietnam War. Um, and I started looking into why um, and realized it was partially and largely a demographics issue. Basically, the baby boomers were retiring, um, and so they were able to continue to consume without producing. Um, and so that was just basically like some of the systems that have been built you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, we're starting to become mathematically difficult. Um, and in 2019, I started to write about how in the next recession, the deficit is about to get absolutely silly. Like they're, they're going to go absolute direct fiscal. Like there's a 2019 post I wrote called something like our bonds in a bubble. And it kind of laid out everything that happened in COVID. They were like, you know, right now things seem disinflationary, but if things get extreme, you know, fiscal can send out money to people, central banks can monetize it. You can just go directly to people. Um, they can create inflation whenever they want. Like it was almost like, like step-by-step step what they actually did. Um, but uh, I, I credit Luke Groman, the analyst, Luke, Luke Groman, um, in, in mid-2019, he kind of pointed out that this might start happening even before the next recession. Um, and, uh, you know, to kind of both of our observation, it happened during the repo spike of 2019, which might sound like jargon to some, but basically that was when the Federal Reserve had to stop doing quantitative tightening in 2019 before the pandemic and before there was a recession, uh, just because there were too many T-bills. Um, so there are various things like that that I found increasingly broken about the system from a U.S. perspective. And then the more I dug into it, I realized that I realized it's even, more, it's even worse on a global perspective. Um, and, uh, you know, for people that know, my, my husband's originally from Egypt. Um, we we had been together for quite a while and uh starting around that kind of 2019 period is when i started to travel to egypt more regularly um and started to see things on the ground more um i had previously been to argentina before i had been to southeast asia before um um but just kind of knowing people and seeing things more regularly also helped um and so Partially, it's probably that pleb, like, kind of startup mindset, but then also studying that fiscal element and studying those international elements helped me kind of see why money's broken. And Lynn, in 2019, you weren't yet a Bitcoiner, is that right? Or had you discovered it by then? I had discovered it and I was interested in it, but I was not yet a Bitcoiner, so... I had actually, unfortunately, discovered it back in 2010. I mean, I had a friend that was, like, was mining it on her, like, computer with her, like, GPU. It was either 2010 do. or 2011. And, mm -hmm. like, I thought, like, yeah, I should do that. And, like, I just didn't. Um, and then there were times in, like, 2015, 2016, where I was like, maybe I should buy a little bit. And then I look at, like, the crypto exchanges, and they were really sketchy looking. And I was like, I feel like I'm going to get scammed. So, I like... I was like, I need to like look more into this, and then I just didn't, right? So like, I was never, I was never like anti Bitcoin or dismissive of it, but it was more like, I was like, yeah, that's that cool like libertarian money that like you know like things like this probably don't work, but like it's it's neat that they're trying, 
it kind of was my view. Um, but then after it had like three cycles, um, I was more interested in it. Um, the first public post I wrote about it was late 2017. It was November 2017, uh, near the top. And I talked about how the technology, and it's still up there, um, I talked about how the technology was fascinating, but the, the euphoria was very high. So I explained still why, why I would not invest, which, which actually ended up being a good thing because it went flat to down for like two and a half years. Um, but the difference was that during that bear market, I didn't forget about it. Like I, in the prior cycles, I kept being like, oh, that's neat. And then I would forget about it. Whereas this time, like I had seen enough cycles that after it kind of like crashed, I was like, I remember the fact that I wrote about it positively. Like I still had a positive view on it, on what it's trying to do. And then I watched the block size wars play out. So I watched, you know, 2017, 2018, what happened when these things split and like, how did the market share end up? Um, and that kind of showed me how immutable in some aspects that Bitcoin was. And so in 2019, I started to get more into it. Um, but then my last question was, how do I price this? Like, is it worth, is it worth 5,000 a coin? Is it worth 10,000 a coin? Like, how do I, because I, I kind of came from a background of somewhat of a value investor. So I, I value like equities. And even though like I had, you know, precious metal background, you know, they have more history. So I was looking at Bitcoin and thinking like, how do you value this thing without being off by an order of magnitude? That was kind of my 2019 dilemma where I was like, I was fully, I was starting to get it. Um, and what really got me on board was that during the pandemic, in 2020, when all assets sold off, um, gold and silver sold off sharply, especially silver, as well as like gold miners and silver miners, um, because there was a liquidity crisis. And I was familiar with those markets and I saw Bitcoin just utterly crash. And I was like, well, it's behaving just like silver is, um, which it's going to balance back as soon as there's like a liquidity injection. So I bought some and I recommended it to my research people, uh, like research subscribers. And then I started leaning more into it. So basically it was kind of like this, there's no one moment, but it was a gradual realization. Basically as Bitcoin just, you know, it, it, just multiple cycles of success uh, and then behaving in certain ways that I would expect started to intrigue me more. When was the suddenly point, Lynn? Or, or was it just gradual all the way, starting 2017 and then 2020 is when... I mean, I, I've heard people refer to you as class of 2020. Is there a, Was that when the sudden, the gradually and then the suddenly part happened in 2020? Yeah, so for what, what makes me a little bit different is that a lot of people buy into bull markets, right? So the, they're the class of a certain bull market. I was the class of a bear market just because I had looked at it in depth in a prior bull market, you know, had some financial sense to pass on it, but then kept watching it in the bear market. And then when it truly had like a desperation crash, I was even more interested. So I was the class of early 2020, um, which, you know, it, it had been the same price as like, 
you know, kind of mid to late 2017, um, and throughout much of 2018, 2019, um, like under 7,000 a coin. Um, and so for me, there was, there was no absolute suddenly period other than the, the downward price spike of the pandemic sell-off that affected all assets that are based on liquidity. Um, so that was my suddenly moment. But the gradually moment was basically seeing three positive cycles of it. So like, okay, this thing's not going away. It is gradually succeeding. Uh, and then seeing the block size war play out. Like if you asked me in early 2017, is Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash going to win? I was like, I don't know. I mean, one has bigger block size and like can do more transactions than the other one. Like I was like, I, you know, I didn't really have, like I didn't just like uh, go into it deeply yet. Um, but seeing the market sort that out and then seeing the liquidity crash um, while still understanding the fundamentals from all my prior research is what was probably my, my suddenly moment, if there was one. So I'm uh, I'm sitting here because we have the double header, um, and I'm I'm first it was Avi who just had his book released like a week ago. Uh, yours is is relatively recent, but you also just had the audio book released by none other than uh, beautiful Guy Swan. Um, what what compelled you? It all I asked uh, Avi the same thing. What compelled you to write the book, uh, uh, Broken Money? So I was in Egypt last year in the autumn, and that was when I pulled the trigger on to write it. So I was sitting there. I Finally, the ideas formed in my head, and then I floated the ideas with my friends there, and they agreed I should write it. Basically, so for years, I had considered writing a book because I have so much written content out there. I was like, why, you know, why can't I take this and put it into a book? Um, but anyone who knows about books knows how comically time consuming they are like the the actual process of getting a book like publish worthy is extraordinarily hard um and the roi like the return on investment of a book is usually not good and like unless you're unless you're jk rowling like unless you're like a professional like fiction writer or like professional like unless you have the absolute like um home run success you know like you don't get rich by writing 500 page finance books, which is what broken money is. Right. So it's not like, I, I kind of went into it thinking it's time consuming and it's not good ROI. Um, so I was in no rush to write a book. Um, but by late like autumn 2022, I had this, like this, a certain, a certain like number of themes had coalesced in my head. Like, I need to talk more about the, the implications of the gap between transaction speeds and settlement speeds, which anyone who read Broken Money knows how big of a role that is. Um, I wanted to highlight the absurdity of having 160 different fiat currency monopoly bubbles. They're almost like casino arcade tokens. Like, they're useful there, but they're not useful anywhere else. Like, all these different little monopoly bubbles that only survive because of capital controls. I wanted to highlight that and like how, you know, some of them were just highly inflationary. Um, and then now having had more personal experience with Egypt, like I had known this intellectually, I studied this, um, but the benefit of like going to Egypt every single year 
and talking to people who live there that I'm family and friends with and getting to know the nuances of it in some ways educated me, in some ways provoked me. Um, so I wanted to like write more about that aspect. Um, and then also the idea of money as a ledger. So I felt that a lot of Bitcoin books focus heavily on uh, the commodity theory of money. Um, and while that's largely correct, they, they, they don't go into enough detail about the credit theory of money. And I, you know, when I write public articles, I get feedback on them. And so, for example, if I, write, if I wrote my article, like, what is money, I naturally get tons of feedback. Like, well, what did, did you read David Graeber's debt the last 5,000 years and how barter didn't exist? And I'm like, okay, clearly I have to address it. Like, it's a common enough question. Like, if I get, I use that, sig I use that as a signal. Like, if I, get a, if I get a bunch of questions that all ask the same thing, I'm eventually like, okay, clearly I need to address this more directly. Um, it's a common question. That particular one came from generally the left of the political spectrum. Um, and I was like, but clearly I need to address this more. So that was like something I wanted to reconcile my book. So basically when enough themes coalesce together, a book just formed in my head. And then the problem was it was, it was distracting not to write it. So I went into it knowing, okay, this is going to be incredibly time consuming. It's going to not make a lot of money compared to like, if I just spent all that time building my core business or doing more venture capital or whatever, it's going to be the, it's going to be the, the least like profitable um, thing to focus on. Uh, but I can't help it. It's like, it, it just feels the most meaningful. Like it's the thing that's, that's calling me right now. So like, fuck it. That's, I'm going to spend this year like, most of my spare time other than my corporations doing that one thing. And I'm really glad I did it. Um, and it played out exactly what I thought. Like, it's just not, it's not a huge financial thing, but it's like, it reaches really influential people and it got it all off my chest and it's been very successful as a book. Um, and it's just something I, I just felt like I was, I had to write. And there's, you know, I guess the selfish element is that there's like a timestamp to it. Like, you know, blogs are kind of ephemeral. Um, even like if you work in venture capital and stuff, like it's, it's kind of a, like ephemeral, but having like an artifact out there, like a tangible product called broken money um, has a certain longevity to it that I find. Like, I just wanted to kind of like put my timestamp on something and be like, here's, here's this thing I thought at this time and I wanted it to be physical. So part of it was I had like an intangible calling to do it. But then the selfish part was like, I just want this like artifact out there that like is that might in some way go beyond like my time in some small way. That was beautifully put, uh, Lynn. You had a story to tell. And I, I would push back and say there was nothing selfish about it. Right, you were a conduit for this uh, incredible wisdom and and intelligence that flowed out of you, and you decided to create a monument out of it or a testament out of it, right? In in the form of this physical artifact, which is your book, uh, so that it, uh, it it becomes timeless in in a sense. Uh, but on onto a more banal topic. Uh, 
and this is something that interests me because I went through this painful process myself uh, right after writing a book. Was did you go? Did you self-publish this, or did you go through a traditional publishing house? So I initially got requests from traditional publishers like Wiley and others uh, that wanted to publish it. Um, I spoke to friends of mine that were authors, and the unanimous opinion from them was to self-publish. Um, mm -hmm. And I have my own company that is involved in the investing publishing business. So I decided to publish it um, from my company. So it was like a decision to self-publish it. And I'm really glad I did because I got a really good editor, Joachim Book. He's, you know, he's a, he's a financial historian from Oxford. Um, and he's both the editor and the fact checker. Whereas like if I was, if I was just assigned an editor from a publishing company, I, pro I probably would not have had as good of an editor as him. They would have imposed word limits. Whereas mm -hmm. for me, the book didn't need to be fin a financial success because either way, this is going to be a small percentage of any income I make. Um, and so it's more like, for me, it's like, I, I optimize entirely for, is this the book I want to write? Right? Whereas a publisher would be like, is this a book we're going to make money from? So if they decide that the book has to be 400 pages instead of 500 pages because it saves on like, you know, book costs, but I feel that the book is better as 500 pages. And, you know, there's, there's somewhat of a risk there for a 500 page book. I mean, you know, like not a lot of people like myself included don't want to read 500 page books. Um, um, but I was like, this is the book that I think needs to be written. Um, and my audience is already tuned to reading like 20,000 word blog posts sometimes, like, like five to 20,000 word blog posts, um, and like reports and newsletters and things like that. Um, and so there is a market for this. Um, but again, it doesn't matter if it's like super financially successful for me. Uh, it's not my income source. And so, uh, I, I eventually chose a self-publishing route because I wanted to have the complete indefinite control of the rights, um, flexibility to choose the length, the editor, the cover, um, all details. And when you traditionally publish a book, some of the advantages are that, you know, like you don't need to provide upfront costs. Like you'll get it in advance and they will cover like editing and stuff. Whereas if you're already just, you know, luckily financially just, you know, like money's not an issue for you. Um, if you can front the cost, like if, if you don't need an advance and you can hire editors, like the best editors and you can hire the best cover designers and you can just kind of like do, do whatever the fuck you want. It, it basically the, 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 the trade-off for, for traditional publishing starts to rapidly diminish. And so everybody I talked to said, just self-publish. Uh, and so I did. And did you use a, a print on demand service like uh, Kindle Direct Publishing or Ingram Spark? Yeah, so I used um, Amazon and Kindle. That's something mm -hmm. that, you know, if I were to write a second book, I'd be like, I had to learn like these kind of processes. If I were to do it a second time, I think it'd be more efficient about it. There's also actually like Safedine. Safedine's um, has his own supply chain, which was a third option. Uh, and his is actually pretty hyper-efficient. Uh, you just get less distribution. 
Um, but basically, yeah, I pursued three simultaneous um, kind of print offerings. I figured might as well make the printing decentralized. Um, yeah, so is print on well, Safedeans is technically not print on demand in the sense that there was like an initial batch, um, but it was still like uh, I guess print controlled, whereas the other two were print on demand. And did you find any challenge in because I, this is something I've run into? I, I wrote a book on Bitcoin and I wanted to sell it for Bitcoin, but using KD Amazon's KDP. That I mean, that's basically impossible, right? Uh, how did you navigate that? Did you navigate that at all? The Bitcoin accepted for your books? Yeah, that's that's one reason I pursued um, safety in so early. So I was in contact with a lot of people. Um, both Consensus Network and Safety basically had reached out in various like you know I, the the I mean the absolute best remarks I got like I post you know you can buy bro broken money. And people on Noster and sometimes Twitter, but you know both, especially Noster, <laughs> ask like the best question: like, can I can I buy broken money with non-broken money? Like, uh, it's you know, like if if I can't, it's like clearly like it's terrible. And from the beginning, I wanted to have the option to buy Bitcoin as a possibility. Although going through those major platforms, it was hard. Um, uh, one of the things I did was when I was talking to Safedine, this was before he announced, now he's got Safe House up and running. So it's his own publishing company. It publishes his books. It's got the supply chain. Um, my book's there. Um, he's also got another one like called Fiat Food. He's got Parker Lewis's new book, uh, which gradually then suddenly. Um, so he's, he's purposely starting a Austrian slash Bitcoin publishing house. That includes it's like a book it's like a bookstore slash publishing house, um, and so it's basically like, I mean, you know, we both like capitalism. If you can make this come to market faster, like like uh, you'll be the first, and I'll like promote the shit out of it because I have a I have a need to make this available in Bitcoin. So the most efficient way that I can make it available in Bitcoin, the better. Um, and so kind of you know basically I was pursuing kind of like. Safe House and Consensus Network, because from the, from pretty early on, like my first my first step was just get it out because I know that obviously the majority of sales are going to be through Amazon. Like, let's be real. Um, but then it was like, clearly this is a pro Bitcoin book. There's going to be Bitcoiners that want to read it. There's going to be Bitcoiners that want to pay for it in Bitcoin. It's ironic if it's not available anywhere in Bitcoin. Um, and so my second priority was, how can I find an entity to make it available in Bitcoin, uh, in either physical or digital or both. And so we got that pretty early. It was like probably a month after the release. Um, but we, we got that place pretty quickly. And I guess the last question, um, because we're right, right, right at our one hour mark, but did writing Bitcoin, uh, broken money give you an ambition? So are you trying to write another one? Now that you kind of learned your uh, your your lessons in the in, in the distribution um, and kind of the things you've learned along the way, uh, writing your first, uh, does it does it make you want to write another one um, since you've been through it? So I do have a second book in mind, and this came up at Pacific Bitcoin. I was on stage with Preston Pish, and he asked me if I if I was thinking of a second book, and he meant it, he meant it as a joke, and I was like, well, honestly, yes. 
Um, so I do actually have a second book in mind. Um, it's purposely more concise. So instead of a 500 page book, it'd be more like a, you know, 250 page book. And it would, it would, it would use the existing experience they have with book publishing. Um, the challenge is that for broken money, I really had to push myself. I really had to like burn myself out to get that out there because I, I do many other things as well. Um, and so I'm purposely trying not to rush for the second book. Um, like I have to focus on work-life balance, um, relationships, things, things like that, like real, real world people. Um, uh, like, you know, the, the fact that I'm Nostralin is kind of like, because like, the most, like, the, the craziest I post on Noster is usually, like, when my husband's, like, in Egypt working on our property, and, like, I'm, I'm, like, on my own for, like, two months, and I start to get kind of weird and isolated. Um, so, like, I, I, I do my best to, like, when I, when I start to, like, just get way into my work or way isolated to, like, make sure I come back from that. Um, and so I don't plan on making the second book anytime super soon, uh, purposely, because I want to, I just want to, focus on things more broadly. Um, but I do have a second book in mind that is also financial, also about money. Um, but it's just a more concise and kind of like easier read in some aspects. And it's also going to focus a little bit more on energy, uh, not just money. Can I suggest a name, Lynn? Fixed money? It's a, it'll, it'll tie the two ends nicely together. It's a I'm good joking. suggestion. The, the other common suggestion <laughs> I get is broken energy. People are like, you should continue the broken series by writing broken energy. Um, I, so I have various ideas. It, it's, still, it's still very early in the conception. Like I have the outline written um, and I have a concept. So far, it's neither broken energy or fixed money. Um, but it doesn't mean it couldn't become those things. Uh, even, even the title broken money itself didn't really materialize until halfway through the writing of the book, the book, I had like other titles in mind. Um, and so we'll see what the title shakes out as, because it's not even clear what year it would be written as or what the final form would be. Um, but yeah, there is a second book vaguely on the horizon in a, in a semi kind of serious capacity. Well, thank you very much, uh, Noster Lynn. Um, it's funny because when you, when you become Noster Lynn, I, I start to think about that GIF, uh, uh, one of us, one of us, where kind of the club community is just really just kind of, a, you fire us up really because uh, you're such a, I guess I'd call it a thought leader, but uh, your, your, your mindset and the way you explain things and the way you draw out macro and um, economics in general just speaks to so many of us. And I really appreciate you coming on and kind of telling that, you know, your, your real story and, and it kind of, you can kind of see how it shapes uh, your thought process and how you analyze things. And I really appreciate you uh, spending time with us. Um, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate everyone on Noster. I, I generally find that in, in some of my traditional macro circles or on Twitter, I feel very constrained with what I write. Whereas Noster, I've kind of let loose a little bit. And so I'm glad that people have enjoyed that. That certainly encouraged me to keep doing it. And I guess you know, the bigger it gets, the more I might be more constrained at doing that. But at least in this, in this moment, this time, it, it's fun to be really kind of like just on there and just like one of us and and just I, I love the fact that you know people are kind of building this together 
Well, we appreciate you taking the time, Lynn. Um, and here's to hoping the big wigs in suits from Twitter don't make their way to Nostar. And we get to keep Nostal in for a long time to come. And lastly, thank you, QW, for pronouncing it as GIF and not GIF. You caught that, huh? I, I was like, I'm going to try it out. And uh, it, it, Lynn, I've, I've been on, this is our 37th episode. Uh, I've been at a, a GIF, um, GIF. Uh, it's, it's, been a high, it's been a hot topic. So uh, I don't even know what's right anymore, Avi, honestly. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what's true, but I go with GIF. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, what was I saying before, my Jeff? I like, yeah, I was doing totally Jiffy Jeff, Jiffy Jeff, Jeff. <laughs> um, it's, yeah. a gift, it's a gift, guys. It's a gift. How many times exactly. do we have to go over this? It's a gift. <laughs> hey, I said it right, and I'm still taking slack. You know, my view is that if I if I pronounce a G like a J, I need a very strong reason. It's kind of like you know, if I pronounce <laughs> if I pronounce like like a, you know. Like certain letters, right? I pronounce them not like their their original meaning. Like I need that. Like the burden of proof is on that direction. Spoken like a true electrical engineer. All right, call to action. Go check out uh, Avi's book Twenty Four, the first long form fiction book uh, in the Bitcoin space. Um, Lynn just launched her uh, audio format from uh, none other than Guy Swan. Uh, check that out and Broken Money, um, of course, the tangible book. I always recommend the hardcover or the ebook. Um, but uh, great. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll end the recording. And uh, I appreciate it, Lynn. Thanks, everyone.